The reading is on page 1225 of the Church Bible. Page 1225, and we'll be reading from 1 John 1 verse 5 through to 2 verse 2. 1 John 1 verse 5 through to 2 verse 2, page 1225. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Now, how do we know anything? Well, two options. We could work it out for ourselves, or we can have somebody through various forms tell us. Now, that works well for the kind of how questions in life, like how does a car work, which I don't know. But uh, it's not so good for the why questions, like why are we here? What's the point in life? What happens when I die? Who decides right and wrong? See, when we start with us, humankind, trying to find out the answers to the why questions, we don't get very far for two reasons. The one is that we're finite, that uh, you know, we are pretty puny, really, you know, in the context of the universe, to be able to work it all out. It's like people who say they're atheists. Do, you need to know everything to know that there isn't something, don't you? Which is a little bit arrogant, but I don't suppose people realise that. But uh, we just don't know enough. We have a finite mental capacity. The other is we're fallible, which means that uh, we don't always go where the evidence leads because we're apt to distort it to suit our own preferences and predilections. Now, that way of starting with ourselves is kind of labelled rationalism. It's a kind of ideology that thinks that we can work out, starting with ourselves, the meaning to life. The alternative way is to allow someone to tell us. We need a revelation, an unveiling, a mystery kind of opened out for us. And that's what Christianity is all about. It is a revealed religion, not a cooked up one. So... As we look at this passage this evening, we look at the first verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. That's what the Apostle, Paul, Apostle John is saying. And the hymn that he's writing about is a reference to Jesus. 
who the Apostle John was with in public ministry for three years, and he saw and he heard and he listened and he subsequently wrote. And Jesus is God incarnate, in other words, God in the flesh, in human form. Jesus told the apostles, the apostles through their writings have told us. Now this revelation of God in history, in space and time, in human form, in the person of Jesus, doesn't mean that we can dispense with our God-given rational faculties, our rationality, not at all. We are to use the full extent of our intellectual capabilities to try and understand that given revelation and to relate it to life, to the way we live. And that revelation has stood the test of time. It has stood the most exacting scrutiny and has proved to be reliable as it's passed down from one generation to the next. Well, then we come to a fundamental Christian truth, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Light and darkness are metaphorical and are used in scripture in two ways, intellectual and moral. Intellectually, light is truth, darkness is error. Morally, light is purity, darkness is evil. So in John's Gospel, for example, the metaphors used in both ways. For the man born blind, he can now see. From birth he had lived in the dark, now he lives in the light, thanks to Jesus. And that miracle is a great visual aid to show us not only who Jesus is with the power to do that, but it illustrates what he's come to do to enlighten those of us in darkness, everyone, so that we can see clearly what life is about. Elsewhere, it's used in its moral sense of walking in the light, in their life and in their conduct. And furthermore, the intellectual and the moral are inseparable. You can't separate belief and behavior, truth from purity. John 3. The, uh, the passage in his gospel where Jesus encounters Nicodemus. And towards the end of John chapter 3, verse 19, we read this. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. So he's really saying, so much for really dispassionate rigor in our intellectual assessment of God's revelation. No, we're skewed. Everyone who does evil hates the light. That's what Jesus says. And, and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And that's the heart of the matter of why God's revelation is rejected. But he goes on. But whoever lives by the truth, literally does the truth, comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done he has, has been done through God. So the one who opposes him that does evil is said to be the one who does the truth. So the mind, our intellect, and our will, that which decides our actions, 
are intertwined. They're deliberately mixed up here. They cannot be separated. The intellectual truth uh, and error is inseparable from the moral purity and evil. One commentator on this book, John Stott, writes, men are not just to know the truth, but to do it, just as they are not merely to see the light, but walk in it. So it's not uncommon for truth to be contrasted, not with error, but with wickedness and unrighteousness. As in, for example, 2 Thessalonians uh, 2.12. So God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. But what does light do when it shines in the darkness? Well, it drives the darkness away. It destroys it. So how did the Gnostics, these people that John is so afraid are infiltrating the church and distorting the Christian faith, although they use Christian vocabulary. So how did these Gnostic false teachers respond to the light? In their case, they lived in error and evil, and yet they still claimed to be in the light. Now, there are three kind of spurious false claims of these so-called Gnostic teachers. And what Paul does, uh, sorry, what John does is he exposes these and he contradicts them. If someone tells us they are a Christian, we are to exercise what's called the charitable assumption. That is, we presume that they say what they are. But it's not necessarily a credible claim if over time their thinking and their behaviour does not match does not seem to match, not, just, just, does not seem to be consistent with what Jesus has taught and the way Jesus has lived and the, what the apostles taught and the way the apostles have lived. If it's consistently at variance with the apostles and their teaching and their behaviour, that God is light, we might flag up a question mark in our mind. Well, there are three false claims and they have a bit of a symmetry about them. First of all, um, he spells out what the error is. So in verses 6, 8, and 10, he spells out the error. He says in verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness. In 8, if we claim to be without sin. And 10, if we claim we have not sinned, well, then he contradicts them. He says, we lie. In 8, we deceive ourselves. And ten, we make him, that's Jesus, out to be a liar. So where does that leave them? Well, verse 6, they do not live out the truth. Verse 8, the truth is not in us. Verse 10, his word is not in us. And what's the divine remedy? Well, he spells that out as well each time he tackles one of these uh, false lines of thought. But if we walk in the light, verse 6, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Verse 8, if we confess our sins, then he will forgive us our sins. And verse 2, 2, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And all those things are based on something else, they're based on a particular action in time and space. Verse 7, the blood of Jesus' his Son purifies us from all sin. Verse 9, he is faithful and just and will purify us from all unrighteousness. 
and verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the first error is a denial that sin breaks our fellowship with God, verses 6 and 7. The false teachers claim that we can have fellowship with God while at the same time we walk, that means habitually live. Walks are rather lovely way in which um, we walk in the Spirit, we walk with Christ. It has that sort of consistency, it has that um, well here, habitual way. You know, we are, he's alongside us through life. He says we can, um, they seem to think that they can have fellowship with God while at the same time walk in darkness. Well, what had Jesus said in his Gospels? The Apostle would recall this. And in John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, for these Gnostics, the human body was a mere envelope covering the human spirit, and to them, the human spirit was inviolable. It meant that it couldn't contaminate it. It was hermetically sealed from the body. So in other words, what you do in the body couldn't affect your inner soul. So they could claim erroneously that they could be right with God even though they were doing wrong things. They could have spiritual communion along with physical immorality. You get that today in something like transcendental meditation, which is a feature of um, some forms of Hinduism, where the spiritual vibes gained whilst doing your yoga and doing absolutely impossible things with your feet, sort of putting them around your neck, which uh, my feet could never get anywhere near, really. But uh, you can do all that. You can carry out these spiritual exercises, so-called. It doesn't really matter what you get up to, because... Um, they're completely separate. So, those of you who are, can remember the 70s and 80s, and remember a guy called Bhagwan Rajneesh, who was a kind of advocate of transcendental meditation, who seemed to collect Rolls Royces. You know, I think he had about 60 or 70 of them in the American desert somewhere. Well, his kind of communes that he set up were nothing but kind of expressions of total sexual anarchy. Well, John's verdict. You lie, he says, and do not live by the truth. One commentator on uh, John's epistle writes this, if we experience a spirituality which is not morally sensitive, then it is not Christian spirituality we are experiencing. Again, he writes, nobody who really knows what it is to have fellowship with God could ever deny the importance of sin or pretend that sin does not affect his relationship with God. He wrote that in 1989. In 1999, he left his wife and three children for a young man well under half his age. In 2014, he wrote, I'm a gay man in a sexually active relationship with a partner. And he claims, we are believers who have known the power of the word of God and the spirit of God in our lives. On the other hand, we long for fulfillment of our, in his opinion, God-given potential for sexual intimacy. Now, I knew him very well. I learned actually a lot about the Christian faith from him. 
he and I were part of a study group of about a dozen of us who met for a whole day four times a year. He was a really gifted Bible teacher. In fact, he was a main speaker quite often at events like Word Alive. Now, he's obviously struggled, and one must have sympathy with that. But he has made a seriously wrong call. He has renegotiated the deal on which his salvation is based. You see, God has revealed how he wants us to live, what life is all about. We have probably very gratefully, after our own wrestle and struggle, come to seek his forgiveness and recognize his authority over our lives. And that authority is over our minds, what we think, over our wills, what we determine to do or not to do, and over our emotions. And we can't renegotiate the deal. We accept his revelation or we reject it. It's not our position to try and renegotiate it. And so it's not me or one other, any other from our little group of a dozen who would say, whatever this particular chap has written, it's a lie. That's what the apostle says, because it is at variance with what Jesus Christ has said. It's a lie, and you don't know the truth. Whatever you think you are experiencing is not actually Christ. It's something else. Another extremely gifted Bible teaching and a lifelong celibate bachelor, John Stott, writes in his commentary, the way to have fellowship with God who is light is not to deny the faith or if, the facts or effects of sin, but to confess our sins and thankfully appropriate God's promises for our cleansing. In verse 7, John affirms the complementarity of truth if we walk in the light as he is in the light. And he writes, if we do, then we experience two things. The first is we have fellowship or shared life, one with another, because that fellowship is grounded upon our fellowship, our shared life with the Father and the Son. And the Apostle Paul would add, and the Holy Spirit. John would as well, but there's a reason why he doesn't tend to use the Spirit, because um, that could be more easily misunderstood with these Gnostic guys. A fellowship based, and secondly, that it's a fellowship based upon the blood of Jesus, his son, which purifies us from all sin. God does more than forgive. He erases the stain of sin in our life. And since purifies is a present tense, we know it's a continuous process, this side of heaven. The condition for receiving, cleansing, through the blood of Christ and for enjoying fellowship with each other is that we walk in the light. The second, uh, yeah, the second error is the denial that sin exists in our nature, verses 8 and 9. The second claim is actually worse than the first. The claim here is to be sinless, to be without sin, the NIV says. The first claim at least conceded 
the existence of sin while denying it had the effect of estranging the sinner from God. Now the very fact of sin is denied. The fact that sin here is singular means he's talking about original sin. Original sin is that tendency introduced by the first human beings, Adam and Eve, who at the fall decided to, instead of living a life orientated around God, who wasn't up there, who was with them in the garden, they knew him face to face, but to do their own thing and distance themselves from God. It's a kind of um, skewed tendency that we are born with. It's a tendency to self-centeredness, orientated around ourselves rather than orientated around God. And John's verdict, by living that way, we deceive ourselves. Why? Because the truth is not in us. If it was, it would make us conscious. It would make us aware of our sinfulness. Today, that would apply to humanists who deny the fact or guilt of sin by seeking to interpret it solely in terms of physiology, psychology, or sociology. They're all good descriptions, looking at human life from different aspects, but they don't have the tools, like science, to actually determine what is morally right or wrong. Like the old friend I just referred to, who argues that because we understand a bit more about, for example, same-sex attraction in his case, though he concedes we don't know actually what causes it, that that means that somehow we should accept it, which does sound rather like special pleading. Scientific knowledge may increase, but science has no tools for determining morality. Verse 9, the proper attitude to sin is not to deny it, but to admit it and confess it and so receive forgiveness for it. God is faithful to his promises. For example, in Jeremiah 31, 34, he promises to forgive and remember people's sins no more. He delivered on his promise. God is just. He can't likely remit the debt of sin that we have towards him. But he's worked out a way to morally be able to remit those sins by he himself, in the person of the Son of God, paying the debt of our sin. Forgiveness and purifying, the debt paid and the consequential cleaned up. And they're conditional things, conditional upon confession of sin, in other words, admitting that our nature is skewed, and of the sins that we actually practice. Not a general confession of sin, but a particular confession of sins, which we're to recall, confess, and forsake. And then the third is the denial that sin shows itself in our conduct. That's the third heretical claim when John writes that if we say we have no sin, you see, we may concede in theory that sin breaks fellowship with God if we did sin, and that sin does, does exist in our nature as an inborn disposition, 
and yet we can deny that we have in practice sinned and so put ourselves out of fellowship with God. I mean, this is the most blatant of these uh, three denials. The Gnostics may, it's always difficult to get your head around how somebody can think that they never do anything wrong. Of course, you can only do that if you kind of redefine what is right and wrong and you rule out all the things you do do. And yeah, you can have wonderful kind of mind games and uh, self-justification, etc. Now, the Gnostics may have kind of got it into their head that if you possess their special knowledge, um, that that enlightenment rendered you incapable of sinning, but they must have gone in for a hefty dose of redefinition to do so. John is as clear about sin in our behaviour as he is about its origin in our nature and its consequence in preventing our fellowship with God. To say that we have not sinned is not just to tell a deliberate lie, verse 6, or to be deluded, verse 8. It's actually to accuse God of being a liar by saying something isn't a sin when God has said it is, which shows clearly that his, quote, his word is not in us, verse 10, because his word declares sin to be universal. He says all have sinned. So 2.1, John writes, as a deeply concerned, older, wiser Christian, a knowledgeable leader, he writes to this young church in Western Turkey, who are often more, Im more impressionable as uh, they were more impressed by image than detecting substance in teaching. He writes, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. And then immediately he adds, but if anybody does sin, that is Christian realism. See, on the one hand, he seems to be saying, we will not sin, and on the other, that we will, and here's what to do. In, uh, in the language in which the apostle wrote, in Greek, there are a variety of tenses for verbs, like the imperfect and the present, and they are what's called continuous tenses which you could represent by a series of uh, zeros. And then there's what's called an aorist tense, a kind of one-off action. So that's represented, this has kind of got too long, but that should all be one line. And that's just one little O, one dot. That's kind of an event that you've done in the past. It isn't continuous, it's all kind of, it is a one-off. And the aorist is the tense that is used here by John for what he, when he talks about sins, they are one-off sins. They're occasional and hopefully less frequent. They're something very different from habitual sinning, as in, for example, 1 John 3, 6, 8 and 9, where he writes, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. One of the tests John will um, tell us about in the next chapters or two, he'll give us three tests we can apply to ourselves to check to the best of our ability whether we are a genuine Christian, whether our, our life and thinking matches our profession. 
And this test here, relevant to here, is the moral test. Now, we don't have to be perfect to pass the test. It is a part of the normal Christian life to sin from time to time, hopefully less frequently and less widely. However, a persistent sinful behaviour should cause serious should cause serious cause for concern because it could well be evidence that our faith is in fact phony. So what do we do then? Well, we go back to basics. What we may have kind of inked over and been rather superficial in our response to Christ, we, we go back and we may have been penciled, as it were. We go back and ink over it, if you like. John ends with God's provision for the sinning Christian. God has provided one who is an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the atoning sacrifice or propitiation for our sins. He's our advocate. Literally, he is the one called alongside us. That's what it means literally in the language he wrote in. And it was adopted for the person in the law courts, the barrister, who, as counsel for the defence, would plead our case. In its original, it's parakletos, which means, uh, which is where we get paraclete from, and it was used by Jesus of the Holy Spirit. So if we have an advocate, a paraclete, in heaven, Christ has a paraclete, an advocate, on earth. The Holy Spirit then pleads Christ's case before a hostile world and Jesus Christ pleads our case before our Father and against our accuser. Jesus Christ does that as soon as we genuinely repent of our sins and seek his forgiveness. We could say it's at that point of conversion that we engage him as our legal counsel. If we made a genuine profession of faith, then we become one of the Father's children and the possessors of eternal life. So when we die, it will, be not, it will not be as a judge that we meet God the Father in some heavenly law court. No, our heavenly Father will say, welcome, your case has already been dealt with. Our advocate is Jesus, which is the human name for him, Christ, the divinely appointed messianic one, and he's perfectly righteous. He ticks all the boxes, divine and human, absolutely perfect in order to be our substitute. And thirdly, he is the atoning sacrifice uh, for our sins and for any sins committed by anyone at any time, anywhere. Our advocate does not plead we are innocent, nor does he adduce extenuating circumstances. He acknowledges our guilt. And do you know what he does? He presents his vicarious work as the grounds for our acquittal. Vicarious means substitutionary. Let me illustrate. So vicars in the Church of England were originally substitute rectors. Originally, all churches had rectors. I'm a rector. That's simply because this is a very old church. Not this that we're in at the moment, but this site has had a Christian church on it 
since Anglo-Saxon times. It's in the Doomsday Book of 1086. It's a little map, and it has a little chapel, and it says Eastrop. So this site is a thousand years old, if you like, as a Christian, as a Christian one. So it would have had a rector. Sometime in the Industrial Revolution, as the population moved into kind of urban areas, the, the rector would uh, put a substitute cleric, a vicar, in a part of town and build a church for those people there. So our advocate paid the penalty for our sins, justly deserved, which was separation and exclusion from the presence of God, which he went through on the cross so that we don't have to be separated and excluded from the presence of God. He did it because God's wrath is upon all sinners and must be averted or appeased if that sinner is to be forgiven. The word translated atoning sacrifice is, an, is in older versions translated propitiation. It's one of the most important words to understand in the Bible. It means placating the wrath of God against those who have sinned against him. Now, God is not just some kind of capricious old deity who chucks kind of lightning forks down to earth when he's in a bad mood or he's just lost it. No, his wrath is a very settled, controlled, holy antagonism to all that is evil. He hates it because it's so destructive of people that he's created. Nor was God's wrath averted by some kind of bribe paid by some reluctant third party, Jesus. On the contrary, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit took the initiative to avert the wrath of God against rebellious and sinful human beings. So God propitiates God. The origin of uh, the work is God's love for us. The Son was not some kind of reluctant individual, but he was willing. The Son was not a third party intervening between us and God. Jesus Christ, the righteous, is not then just our advocate. He is the propitiation. He himself, in human form, offered his, his perfect self to satisfy the justice of God and so avert his wrath against unrepentant sinners. And by his blood, we are able to be washed clean, purified, the stain of sin removed. And Christ is still our propitiation today. Not in any sense that uh, when we have communion, we are reenacting, and it's really Christ being sacrificed again. No, we don't, we don't buy into that. It's not repeating the offering. It is a remembrance. It's not a repeat. What we hold is that Christ's sacrifice, offered once and for all, is of eternal virtue, which is effective today for all those who believe. It's for all who claim its cover for their sins. So God's provision for the professing Christian who sins is his son who possesses a threefold qualification. His righteous character, his propitiatory death 
and his heavenly advocacy. Each of these depends on the other. We would not have an advocate in heaven if he had not died to be the propitiation for our sins. His propitiation would not have been effective if in his life and character he had not been Jesus Christ the righteous. Perfect man, perfect God, with a perfect life to offer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognise in our honesty that we do sin, either habitually, if we've not embraced you uh, wholeheartedly and genuinely, but certainly one-offs and occasionally if we have. But we thank you that there is this perfect, effective sacrifice of you yourself who came to earth to live in human form, to live a perfect life, and to die unnecessarily for yourself, but for our sins you died and suffered, and you were separated from the Father for that period of time. May we understand it. May it have that ring of truth in our life, and may we embrace it so that our sins can be forgiven, that we know peace with you, our guilty consciences, are cleansed and our life is transformed and renewed by you. Amen.